0: from the heart of our nation's capital here's family research council president tony perkins
1: happy friday and welcome to washington watch i'm joseph backholm i'm a senior fellow for biblical worldview here at family research council and i am your guest host tony will be back in the chair on tuesday after labor day but today it's my pleasure to be with you a couple quick reminders the website is tonyperkins.com where you can find this in every episode of Washington Watch whenever it is convenient for you. Also, the Prevote Stand Summit is coming in Atlanta, Georgia, September 14th through the 16th. Go to prayvotestand.org/summit to get all the details and to register. Look forward to seeing you there. Great show today. Lots of strong language being used. The term fascist is being used by the left to describe the right and sometimes by the right to describe the left. The president recently called half of America semi-fascist. What does this term mean and does it apply to what we're seeing in America today? A historian of the Soviet Union will join us today for that conversation. Also, only days after California announced they would ban the sale of gas powered vehicles in 2035. They told people not to charge their electric vehicles because they take too much power. What in the world is going on in California? We'll tell you more about that. Also, the president's speech insulted a lot of Americans. And how angry should you be? That's the conversation we'll have in our worldview segment coming up at the end of the show. But first, our headline, our headlines for today. President Biden spoke to the nation from Philadelphia last night, delivering what was objectively an angry and divisive speech that seemed to have the singular goal of villainizing his political opponents as a threat to democracy and a stain on the soul of the nation. America must choose to move forward
2: or to move backwards, to build a future or obsess about the past, to be a nation of hope and unity and optimism. Our nation of fear, division, and of darkness. MAGA Republicans have made their choice. They embrace anger. They thrive on chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies.
1: What was President Biden hoping to accomplish with the speech, and did he pull it off? Joining me now to discuss his thoughts on the president's speech is Representative Bob Good. He serves on the U.S. House Committee on Education and Labor, the House Budget Committee, and he represents the 5th District of Virginia. Congressman Good, good to see you today.
3: Great to be with you, Joseph. Thanks for having me.
1: First, just your reaction to the president's speech from last night.
3: It's really incredible that he would take a fatalistic view towards half of the country. I think Joe Biden's definition of extremism is if you don't agree with him, he kept talking about the assault on the democracy. And I wanted to hand him a 12th grade government book to let him know we're a constitutional republic. But this is a president who has no regard for the constitution that he talked about in the speech. Uh, This is a president who said, you know, a year ago he didn't have the constitutional authority to extend the eviction moratorium, and he did it anyway. He said he, uh, about a year ago he didn't have the uh, constitutional authority to transfer student loan debt to those who didn't incur it. And that was echoed by Nancy Pelosi and his education secretary, and he did it anyway. This is a president who is bound to protect the United States from invasion. Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution requires that, and he is not doing that, and it's for that reason that he deserves to be impeached. But this is, was the most dishonest, divisive, desperate speech I think I've ever seen a president make and to have to write off half the country to say hey you're insignificant you don't matter essentially you're fascist you're extremist uh, and 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 to write them off like that is uh, real to write us off like that is really incredible the president would do that
1: and a lot of people have shared similar feelings and one of the things that was remarkable about it is how lacking in apparent policy purpose it had there's no national crisis there's been no hurricane there's been no terror strike that would justify a primetime speech of this nature, and it really did appear to be solely for the purpose of targeting and maligning really his political opponents. And during the speech, President Biden gave us some clues as to who he thinks we as a country should be afraid of. Let's play clip one.
2: MAGA forces are determined to take this country backwards, backwards to an America where there is no right to choose. No right to privacy. No right to contraception. No right to marry who you love.
1: Congressman Good, I would disagree with the way he frames those issues, but he just seems to be describing social conservatives. Is it fair to suggest, based on those remarks, that he thinks social conservatives are dangerous?
3: This is the arsonist who blames others for causing the fire. He accuses his opponents of what he does. This is the president who's created the greatest assault on our privacy that we've ever seen the privacy of our uh, ability to make our own healthcare decisions, disclose whether or not we've gotten a vaccine. Uh, This is a president who's trampled on freedoms like we've never seen. Freedom of worship, freedom of assembly, freedom of travel, freedom of movement, freedom to earn a living, to operate your business, to go to work, uh, to keep your job, to go to school, to keep your kids in school. That's what this president has done. And again, he continues to accuse his enemies of that which he does.
1: Well, to that point of accusing his enemies of that which he that which he does, Biden said one of the biggest problems is those who refuse to accept free and fair elections. Let's play clip it.
2: Stand by and watch. I will not. The will of the American people be overturned by wild conspiracy theories and baseless evidence-free claims of fraud. I will not stand by and watch elections in this country stolen by people who simply refuse to accept that they lost.
1: Now, Congressman Good, we don't have to go back very far in history to remember a time when President Biden and many members of his party uh, were had difficulty accepting the results of the election. Let's play clip nine.
2: He's an illegitimate president in my mind. Would you be my vice <laughs> candidate? But... <laughs> Folks, look, I absolutely agree. Trump didn't actually win the election in 2016. He lost the election, and he was put into office because of the Russians' interference. Trump knows he's an illegitimate president. The president-elect, although legally elected, is not legitimate. I don't see this.
0: President-elect as a legitimate president. You said you believe that Russia's interference altered the outcome of the election.
4: I do. We have a president who, if in fact it is proven, uh, has been assisted by the Russians and may in fact not be a legitimate president.
0: I have an objection. I object to the 15 votes from the
5: state of North Carolina. I object because people are horrified.
1: Now, Congressman Good, uh, among those voices, we heard Hillary Clinton, Jerry Nadler, Representative John Lewis, Representative Jamie Raskin, and Sheila Uh, Jackson Lee and Barbara Lee begs the question, by Joe Biden's standard, does he think uh, Hillary Clinton is a threat to democracy?
3: Well, this president, because of him and his administration, we no longer have confidence in our Department of Justice, in our law and federal law enforcement agencies, our health agencies, and the integrity and accuracy of our elections. So you would think that anybody that was concerned about what happened in November of 20, or for that matter, January of 21, would want to do everything they could to restore full faith and credit in the accuracy and integrity of our elections, and would work for laws and standards that would ensure that we have voter ID, that we don't have unsolicited mass mail balloting, that we don't have third party handling of ballots or ballot harvesting. We don't allow non-citizens to vote, but yet the Democrat party and Joe Biden are against all of those things. So it's no wonder that the American people don't have confidence in our elections. And certainly they facilitated that or initiated that with how they approached the results of 2016.
1: And it does seem ironic to me, and I know others, that those who are concerned with um, election integrity and those who want to make sure that ballots can be verified and that they aren't going places where they're going to be filled out and returned by people who aren't actually legal to vote, those concerns are the threat to democracy. It's not the potential uh, for sloppy elections that is the threat to democracy. But Congressman Good, I've got a theory that I want to run by you, because in recent years, the, the most popular way to malign Republicans heading into an election is to accuse them of being racist. Now, we've seen in recent cycles how, uh, the, especially in the Hispanic community and the black community, increasingly those votes are moving to the right. Do you think it's possible that they've seen that the accusations of racism are no longer sticking, so challenging and accusing Republicans of being a threat to democracy is the new accusation of racism?
3: I think you're right. No country in the history of the world has been more welcoming to minorities, to people of all racial backgrounds, all ethnicities, all national origins, have given more upward mobility opportunity. That's why people are coming from all over the world, even illegally, from all colors and races and backgrounds to flood into our country because we are the most welcoming society. Where else in the history of the world has a minority risen the highest office of land been elected twice over, even despite doing an awful job in his first term? He got reelected second term because Americans didn't care what he looked like or what his race was based upon. So the jig is up. The Democrat Party is being exposed. And you're going to see more minorities vote for Republicans uh, this November than I think you've seen in a very long time.
1: Congressman Good, the title of his um, speech was interesting because he says, President Biden says that we are in a battle for the soul of our nation. And he, of course, wants to be on the side of defending the soul of our nation. Do you agree? I mean, first, how do we know what is the soul of our nation and what is the battle over that?
3: Well, the fact the president would use the the resources of the White House and the federal government to conduct this speech with your tax dollars for what was clearly a political campaign speech, you know, to do it with the Marines behind them, which is unprecedented for him to do that for political purposes. But it's this president who is assaulting the soul of the nation. Everything that we hold dear is at stake in this election, whether it's our national security our economic security, the values, how we're going to raise our children. Life is on the ballot this election. A uh, strong military is on the ballot in this election. Are standing on the national stage. You know how we heat our homes and how we, how we, what kind of cars we can drive. Think about it. this: is an administration who thinks they should be able to tell us what kind of a car we can drive. There's never been more trampling on our freedoms than has happened the first two years of this Biden administration. And that, the essence of what makes America a nation of constitutional republic of free, uh, of free people, uh, everyone's equal under the law. That is on the ballot here in November.
1: Also, in Biden's speech, and, and frankly, the entire, um, the Democratic messaging machine is still trying to make much of January 6th. Now, I don't like whataboutism. Um, the idea that, oh, well, they did something, we did something bad, well, they did something bad too, so it's okay, right? But in recent history, uh, we know January 6th happened. We see footage of it all the time. We also know that Justice Kavanaugh was targeted by an assassin. We know that Steve Scalise was shot during a softball practice by a Bernie Sanders supporter. Of course, None of this makes anything else excusable. Why can't we? Why is it difficult to just hold hands across the aisle for the president to stand up and say violence is bad? It's not MAGA Republicans. It's not Bernie Sanders supporters. Violence from anywhere is bad. We should stop. Why does that seem so difficult to do?
3: I think it's because, Joseph, that they're failing on every issue. As you said, it goes back to what the speech was about. He can't talk about the economy. He can't talk about the border. He can't talk about inflation or gas prices or grocery prices. He can't talk about rapidly rising crime. He can't talk about a failure in Afghanistan or the weakening of our military on the national stage. He can't talk about academics or, or the education of our children, what's going on in our schools and the loss of learning, what they did in the name of COVID. So it's January 6th forever. Everything's racist. Everything's climate extremism to try to scare folks. The sky is falling literally and everything is, is COVID forever. Uh, that, that's why they that's why they resort to, as you said, calling e- their enemies a racist. That's the default line or now a fascist as well.
1: Congressman Good, uh, what happens in the next uh... Month, two months between now and the election?
3: Well, I think the American people, the the, the veil has been lifted. They realize who the Democrat Party is. This is not the Democrat Party of our parents and our grandparents. This is the party of extremism. This is the party of climate extremism, anti- Uh, fossil fuels, anti-reliable energy. This is the party of open borders, the party of, you know, indoctrinating our kids instead of educating them. And I think the American people are going to reject it boldly and and, and resoundingly on November 8th. You're going to see a strong Republican majority. Congressman Bob Good, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Joseph. Great to be with you.
1: Coming up next, fascism is a term being thrown around a lot these days. What is it? We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us.
6: Learn more at FRC.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. President Biden and his White House messaging team have started to use a term that might seem inflammatory. The term is semi-fascism. Recently, at a private reception, he said the following, quote, And what we're seeing now is either the beginning or the death knell of an extreme MAGA philosophy. It's not just, it's not just Trump. It's the, it's the entire philosophy that underpins its, I'm going to say something, it's almost like semi-fascism, the way in which it deals, end quote. Now, yesterday, White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre tried to explain what that means.
7: When we talk about um, semi-fascism um, and you talk about the attack on our democracy, that's what we're talking about, right? An attack on our democracy, uh, that's what we're seeing, attack on our, uh, on our freedoms. That's what we're seeing uh, from the MAGA Republicans in Congress. That is what they're doing.
1: Is that a good definition or not? Joining me now to discuss this is Larry Taunton. He's an author, a columnist, and the executive director of the Fixed Point Foundation. He's a student of Soviet history and how their leaders targeted political opponents and knows a little something about fascism. Larry, welcome to
8: Washington Watch. How you doing, Joseph?
1: Great, we're glad to have you. Uh, First, let's start. What is fascism?
8: Well, uh, first I have to say that whoever is responsible for typing out, you know, in quoting Joe Biden. They did a brilliant job. <laughs> uh, I even love the way you read it. I mean, you you read it as incompetently as you said it. But let, let me just simply say this, that historically speaking, uh, you know, historians have often, you know, considered uh, a fascism an expression of the extreme right and, uh, and communism and Marxism an expression of the extreme left. But much more recent post-Soviet scholarship really considers them expressions of the same worldview. And um, th- that is to say they're both godless. They're both totalitarian. They, they both require strict controls of the, uh, of the economy. Uh, uh, both of them uh, have strong strains of anti-Semitism. Both are anti-democratic. And, you know, so I've had a little bit of fun on Twitter and elsewhere simply asking leftists, when you say fascist, what do you mean? Give me a definition. And I've yet to get an answer to that question.
1: Well, in light of that, why do you think it's a term that is bantied about so frequently, yet, uh, at least in your experience, people are unwilling to define it?
8: Well, I think that one of the reasons, Joseph, is because for uh, the the left has had a love affair you know for the past really the past century with socialism with marxism and they were very reluctant uh, to to condemn it the way they condemned uh, nazism uh, in germany you know hitler's germany even even after the horrors of, uh, of Stalinist Russia became widely known. I mean, you, you had figures like Walter Duranty for the New York Times, you know, who won uh, infamously. He, he won a Pulitzer Prize, which has never been revoked for his, his lying. We now know he was an instrument um, of the Soviet regime for his lying about the famines um, in Soviet Russia. Uh, we, we have figures like George Bernard Shaw, who was a hardcore communist. And when asked, you know, if Stalin was killing people, he said, well, yes, but he's killing the right people, meaning that the left has always been very reluctant to condemn uh, Marxism and communism. and And when they're forced into a corner, uh, to discuss things like uh, genocide, they usually say, well, you know, it's, it's simply because, you know, Stalin or, uh, you know, Mao got communism and Marxism wrong. Uh, whereas when it comes to, uh, when it comes to fascism, they've always been ready to bandy that term about as a, uh, you know, as a as a epithet, you know, as a way of of condemning their ideological component, uh, ideological opponent. So that's exactly what they're doing here. They've not offered any kind of working definition. They just simply are labeling anybody who voted for Trump. And I don't care what Biden said today. Biden walked back his remarks today. But the reality is they're calling anybody who voted for Trump a fascist. And they've yet to tell us what they mean by that.
1: Well, in fairness, uh, we can't even define woman anymore. So terms like fascism are uh, much more complicated. And so I I suppose we shouldn't be surprised at the difficulty of defining those. But from uh, from your perspective, are we facing a threat of fascism in America today?
8: Well, um, well. First of all, let me say this. I, I'm going to modify your comment slightly, Joseph. I think that you and I, not we. I think you and I know exactly what a woman is. Uh, I think. I think it's the uh, the fascist left, and I say that by way of answering your question. I do think we face a fascist threat in this country, but it's not coming from the direction the media would have you believe. We are seeing fascism historically was defined as a a kind of strict regimentation of the economy for the purpose of war, you know, by by a government, and uh, that it contained perhaps elements of, of anti-Semitism, maybe some elements of racism, and that it, it, it saw uh, things, uh, you know, slightly differently in economic terms. But what we are actually seeing in this country looks very fascist. We are seeing um, the government slowly taking the reins of power across the board in the economy. We're seeing the government and the economy and companies weaponized against roughly 80 million American people. And when we're talking about, you know, racist elements, that's also coming out of the left. I mean, the whole white privilege, the the condemnation of white people, the, the, the victimization of people of color, this is all very racist, and it's coming out of the left.
1: Larry Taunton, in less than a minute now, what's the correct response when somebody accuses us of being a fascist?
8: Well, I would, uh, I would push on them a little bit and ask them, just as I've been asking, what do you mean by that? And typically what they will say to that is, well, I mean Trump voters, but then I just take that, that's just going, you know, one step back. Okay, then what are Trump voters actually doing that you think is fascist? I mean, name something that they're actually credibly doing. The fact is, Joseph, that everything the left is calling fascist is exactly what the left is doing
1: well it does seem that just being upset with what the left is doing not wanting your uh, child to be exposed to uh drag queens in third grade uh being upset by that well, is a threat to seems, democracy <laughs> that is a threat to democracy larry taunton fixed point foundation thanks for your time today
8: hey delighted to see you
1: coming up California is moving to ban the sale of gas powered vehicles, but they're also telling people not to charge their electric vehicles. What in the world is going on in California? We'll tell, tell you all about it when we come back. Stay with us.
6: Are you a university student? Do you know a university student? Specifically one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15-week internship program that has prepared and equipped students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, and weekly biblical worldview training, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls. This paid internship offers fully-funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving you the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
9: What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. The website is TonyPerkins.com. You just heard the ad there for the Pray Vote Stand Summit happening in Atlanta. Looking forward to seeing so many of you with us there. want to specifically remind you of a special worldview session that I will be part of for College and high school students hope you will be there. It's Friday afternoon from 4 to 7. We will have an introduction to worldview, and there will be a 90-minute Ask Anything session after we've given you pizza where we can talk about everything that's bothering you, what's going on on campus, what are you seeing on YouTube and TikTok and everywhere else, um, how to be a Christian in this world, how to be a young Christian in this world, which is particularly challenging. We look forward to having that conversation. Go to prayvotestand.org slash summit to register. Now, earlier this week, just days after announcing a ban on the sale of gas-fueled cars by 2035, State of California begged residents to avoid charging their electric vehicles during peak usage hours to save energy during a routine summer heat wave. Here's California Governor
8: Gavin Newsom. We voluntarily ask you to do a little bit more to help us get through the next week or so. uh, To turn, interestingly, up a little bit the thermostat at home to 78 degrees. Try to pre-cool earlier in the day the the home. Uh, Try not to use... Uh, too much electricity in those key hours. And the key hours are between 4 p.m. and 9 p.m. uh, in the evening. Try to reduce your consumption to the extent possible.
1: Why does California seem to consistently have power shortages? And is this going to spread to the rest of the country as well? Joining me now to discuss this is Mark Morano, publisher of Climate Depot and the author of The Great Reset. Mark, welcome to Washington Watch.
0: Thank you. Thanks. for Happy to be here.
1: Well, give us a little background. We just kind of know what's happening. Why is this happening?
0: This is happening. This is not democracy. Everyone says oh, democracy, democracy. This was a Gavin Newsom executive order that was then followed up on by the California Air Resources Board, an unelected, unaccountable bureaucracy in the state that just announced we're going to ban cars in 2035. Deal with it. And this is a very simple concept. In terms of the great reset agenda coming from the World Economic Forum, which wants to collapse the current system and rebuild up something in their own sustainable image. And for what California is doing is essentially announcing they're creating a car shortage. And we can't just ignore it because 14 states, including my home state of Virginia, are yeah. following along. We have trigger laws. They're following it. The Biden administration is all in on this. Europe is all in on this. Germany's announced they're following suit. And even more importantly, the banks. Australian bank has announced they won't give car loans, and the World Bank doesn't want to fund car production at the automaker level. So. They have it in for American cars, for cars in general, and for creating car shortages. That's what they're seeking.
1: I want to understand something you said there. You said they have trigger laws, 14 other states. Are you saying there are 14 states who have laws requiring them to follow California's laws?
0: Yeah, well, I don't know if it's complete. There's about 14 states that are following it. Many of them have triggers, including Massachusetts, Virginia. In Virginia, our old Democratic governor, Northam, had a legislative pass a bill with the Democrats. And little notice at the time that we would essentially, instead of investigating what's good for Virginia, we're just going to follow those noble sages in California and we'll pretty much do what they do. And so because they're doing this uh, with banning cars, Virginia is now by law set to do the same thing. Now, luckily, we have. Governor Yumkin, who was elected to replace this insanity, and he is now actively working, getting a bill passed, and they're going to do everything in their power to get us off this insane track. Because all of the all they're doing, this is a pay, borrowing a page from Cuba because Cubans aren't able to get new cars, so they are stuck with 1950s Chevy Impalas <laughs> driving around. Barring a page from East Germany where the government back said, actually told their residents, you can only buy this approved car, and people were on waiting lists for five years, seven years, to get a to get a very subpar uh, car called the Trabant. That's what Gavin Newsom's proposing, a car shortage. Instead of let them eat cake, it's let them drive the city bus because people are going to be forced into mass transit, and it's not gonna be Governor Newsom and Hollywood and the and the ruling class. Now, now, Mark, to that point, surely they see this
1: problem. If you say you cannot have a gas powered vehicle, yet our power grid uh, doesn't give us enough power to charge your electric vehicle, do they intend to close that gap or do they just intend to make it so difficult to drive a car that no one does?
0: No, I think it's the latter. They absolutely, that's the hilarity of this. They announced this big thing and it's a a big transformation. This is historic. And then the next day, it's like, uh, folks, we're running out of energy. Don't charge your electric cars. I mean, you can't make this up. They don't care. They don't care. Gavin Newsom does not care one bit. He is, it brings a smile to the face of every climate activist that people are going to be stuck. It's going to be a weird situation. It's a used car market of gas-powered cars. You won't be able to make new ones. You won't be able to get loans. So people are going to be, trading their old used cars and the people who could afford it might buy an electric but electrics make no sense because you're going to have the biggest ramp up in rare earth mining and the global history to accomplish it and you're going to be heavily more reliant on china and there's nothing eco-friendly about an electric car it takes more fossil fuels to make takes the takes the, the the mining and it also recharges on fossil fuels and you have problems with recycling batteries It is insane from beginning to end. Only an academic who was a a void of the real world could come up with a plan like this. And I bet that that came up with this plan.
1: Mark, in about 15 seconds, should we have to choose between cooling our homes or destroying our planet?
0: No, and that's the sad thing. We were actually saving the planet by more fossil fuels because we took better care. And now we have people in Colorado, the government, and the utilities shutting off their thermostats We were warned the Outer Limits TV show in the 1960s actually showed the same thing. Don't touch that dial. You know, this is sci-fi real world coming here. It's insane. They're basically saying we can't live modern lives or we'll destroy the planet. So they're going to reduce us to serve I've got to cut you off. We are out of time. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Coming up, the
1: Senate Majority Leader is hoping to codify the redefinition of marriage this month. We'll tell you about it when we come back.
6: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony. In July, the U.S. House of Representatives voted to codify into law the 2015 Supreme Court ruling redefining marriage. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer now plans to bring the intentionally misnamed Respect for Marriage Act to a vote in the Senate, and some Republican senators are indicating they'll support this act. FRC Action recently sent an alert urging voters to contact their senators to not approve this legislation. Joining me now to discuss the dangers of this bill is Mary Beth Waddell, Director of Federal Affairs and Family Religious, family and Religious Liberty here at FRC. Mary Beth, good to see you today. It's
4: great to be with you, Joseph. Thank you.
1: Now let's talk about this because we know that the Supreme Court already invented a right to same-sex marriage. That is the status quo. Mm-hmm. Why do Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, and Joe Biden think that this also needs to put in, be put into federal statute?
4: Well, obviously, the, this bill really isn't about just codifying Obergefell and saying that same-sex marriage is OK uh, legislatively, instead of through judicial activism. This bill goes well beyond that. That's just sort of the smoke screen that they're trying to use to say that this bill is just status quo. It's not that bad. But even if you look at status quo, status quo is Jack Phillips. Yeah. Uh, winning at the Supreme Court yet facing another lawsuit. It is Baronel Stutzman losing um, her business. You know, it is Catholic charities being sued simply because they are Catholic charities. Um, they did nothing to instigate a lawsuit, no denial of service, quote unquote, or anything like that. So this bill is really about making sure that there is no place in polite and public society for people of faith and that organizations of faith uh, cannot help those in need in their communities Um, that is the real goal of this bill um, and what's really at stake here Uh, is harmful to children harmful to women harmful to families harmful to religious liberty as a whole
1: now mary beth you say it goes far beyond the status quo that uh, obergefell creates what else does it do
4: so this bill creates another open door into the courtroom. It gives a another avenue for attack via frivolous litigation against individuals who are people of faith and organizations of faith um, that does not currently exist, because obviously this would be a new law and a new statute that can be used as a basis for a lawsuit. Um, if anyone is seen uh, as, quote unquote, working on behalf of the government or a grantee of the mm-hmm. government, or uh, something of that nature uh, doing something that the government would typically do, um, they are ripe for a lawsuit. That includes your adoption and foster care agencies um, and any number of other social agencies and things like that. And then it also, where Obergefell uh, was just the judicial activism, this would now be the legislature itself speaking on this policy point, which then opens up the door to targeting the tax-exempt status of any faith-based organization a 501c3 has tax exemption, you know, religious schools, the, you name it, um, because now the legislator, legislature has acted and spoken on this policy point. And so it opens up that door that we already know is a target, as we saw with reconciliation and the 87,000 new IRS agents that are being hired.
1: Yeah, and, and we don't want to give uh... Those 87,000 new agents, another reason to target people. But in addition to that, um, the reason, one of the reasons I think that this legislation was introduced was because of what happened in Dobbs overturning Roe v. Wade. And for 50 years, people uh, expected, did not believe that it was possible for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. And if Roe v. Wade had been put into federal statute, even when the case was overturned, you would still see abortion as the law of the land. Likewise, if marriage is redefined in federal statute, if and when Obergefell is overturned at some point in the future, it would not be returned to the states because the federal government would have put it in a state statute. And that's really, I think, the reason why they, one of the reasons, I should say, why they have decided to take this action now. Mary Beth, what do you encourage people to do in light of the looming debate in the Senate?
4: This is a very real threat that the Senate could very well pass in the next couple of weeks. So folks need to uh, speak out with their senator. Uh, Go to frcaction.org slash marriage uh, and send a message, send an email, give a phone call to your senator, uh, both of them, and let them know um, how dangerous this bill, how opposed you are to the bill, um, because they absolutely must hear from their constituents on this.
1: That's frcaction.org slash marriage. Go there to get all the information you need, as well as to contact your member of the U.S. Senate. Mary Beth Waddell, thanks for your time today. Thank you. Last night, the president used a primetime address to the nation to insult a lot of Americans, specifically Americans who believe in biblical marriage and and those who believe there is a better way than abortion. Now, the president implied that those who disagree with him don't just have a difference of opinion but they're trying to take the nation backwards. They're angry. They are a threat to democracy, a threat to the rule of law, even a threat to the very soul of this country. Well, what should you do in response? Should you get angry? Joining me now for our weekly worldview segment here in studio is David Klaassen. He's our director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. David,
10: good to see you. Hey, great to be with you, Joseph.
1: Now, first, are you surprised by the... uh, accusations, if that's the right word, that the president made against what really represents about half the country?
10: I'm not. And I'm not surprised, Joseph, because I've been paying attention to the Biden presidency uh, since his inauguration day uh, last year. He he promised a lot of uh, unity and uh, bringing the country together, this battle for the soul of America. But over the last year and a half or so that Joe Biden's been president, the policies that this administration has pursued has been uh, – steamrolling whenever they can, people of faith, uh, kind of marginalizing anyone who disagrees with them on really significant issues. So last night's speech, although it was, and I know we've been talking about it all day, it was an interesting speech. It was a very political speech, um, but I was not at all surprised yeah. by, by the tone and tenor of the speech at all, just because this has been characteristic of Joe Biden and those uh, that work in his administration since day one, really.
1: Well, a lot of the people who watch that speech and a lot of people who are listening to us and watching us today, these are Christians who care about public policy. And, and, of course, politics is a an emotional game, right? People get emotionally invested in the issues and sometimes in the people and the parties and all those things. So when you see something like that come from your president. There's a lot of people who will feel insulted, like my feelings are hurt, maybe seriously, maybe just politically. I'm just kind of angry because you've, you've misrepresented me. You've mischaracterized me. I don't think that way at all. Um, yes, I'm pro-life, but I'm not trying to destroy the country, whatever that emotion is. How should Christians respond to moments when we feel insulted?
10: Yeah, such a good question, and I think it's important just to realize, you know, elections have consequences, and the fact that Joe Biden won an election, he's president. And this is what we we deal with. Now, it is true watching that speech last night, myself included. I think there's millions of social conservative, faithful Christians um, who, you know, listened to the speech and thought. He's talking about me when he's talking about people who are pro life and uh, pro marriage. He didn't use those terms, but that's who he was clearly referring yeah. to. And probably thought, I'm not a threat to democracy. I'm not this vicious, mean, subversive person. And I think there is kind of a, your first impulse is to get defensive and to yeah. kind of want to, you know, uh, latch out in some way. Uh, but actually, I think that's where as Christians, we need to go back to our Bibles. Right. You know, this is our worldview segment where we like to go to Scripture. <laughs> and actually, you know, Jesus talked about this a lot um, the, when I was thinking about this question, Joseph. I went to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said um, in, in Matthew 5, he said, you know, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. And he, he actually looked at the crowd and said, blessed are you when others revile mm-hmm. you and persecute you and say all kinds of things against you falsely on my account Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Yeah. And there are other scriptures where Jesus said if, you know, if they persecuted me, they will persecute yeah. you. First Peter he said don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you as if you weren't expecting this. Yeah. So throughout the New Testament, Joseph, we see uh, the Lord graciously preparing his people to encounter difficulties. And for 2000 years Christians have encountered difficulty. Yeah. So we shouldn't be surprised. We're in a long line of people who have been marginalized.
1: Yeah, and and it's an important point there. Blessed are you when they falsely accuse you. And there is something that needs to happen, right? When somebody criticizes you, the accusation better be false because the (laughs) reality is, right, in American politics, sometimes we do misbehave. And we saw what happened on January 6th, misbehaved right? Lots of people did, shouldn't have happened. There are temptations to be angry and lash out. And and we see incidences, you know, flare up, seem to be with more frequency. And as we've discussed today, that's a bipartisan problem. Sin is not a right-wing or a left-wing thing. When people's hearts get invested in the wrong things and they get angry and a goal gets blocked, they can be tempted to do things that are sinful, right? So if we are being accused of things and insulted because of actual sinful behavior we've engaged in, we need to correct that. But sometimes it's just by association. And in that case, we can, you know, carry on.
10: Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, again, we shouldn't be surprised that this has happened in 2022. Uh, our colleague George Barna has been doing worldview surveys you know, for years, and right. the survey he did for us here at the Center for Biblical Worldview at FRC showed that only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview, that they look out at the world, and they look at these policy questions, and only 6% of our friends and neighbors would have this worldview that social conservatives have. Yeah. And so increasingly, the, the views and beliefs we have are going to not just be seen as outdated or or just old-fashioned, they're going to be seen as uh, bigoted and subversive, and I think we need to be prepared for that, and we need to prepare our hearts for that and to respond graciously, to respond convictionally, uh, but to realize that's going to come to us.
1: Yeah, and and we've talked on the show this week because this is the, the one-year anniversary of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? And we've talked to people from Voice of the Martyrs who, are, who have told the stories of what life is like for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now, right? We might be frustrated with Joe Biden, but Joe Biden is no Taliban, right? And we're thankful for that. We're thankful that the way Joe Biden speaks seems outrageous to us because it's not normal when those who are living under the Taliban, right, they would yeah. they would give anything to just deal with the problems that Joe Biden gives them. Now, that's not a reason to be indifferent, right. but it's helpful perspective for us as Christians to understand that facing, you know, opposition from our political leaders isn't really a new problem for Christians, is it?
10: No, it's not. And I think, you know, the context that Christianity was born in, in the ancient Roman empire, Uh, you know, some of the first uh, generations of Christians uh, were blamed. I think of Nero, you know, uh, who probably was the one that set a fire there in Rome and blamed the Christians. A generation later, Diocletian blamed the Christian and goes after them. And so I think you're, you're right. We, you know, as Christians in the 21st century here in America, mm-hmm. uh, we've in some sense become accustomed to a comfortable lifestyle. Um, but our forebears in the faith, and again, it's I, th- I like to—that's why I think everyone should study church history, uh, because we're not the first to wrestle with these issues or to have to think biblically about the situations we find ourselves. And uh, we stand on the shoulders of 2,000 yeah. years of faithful Christians who have sought to be faithful to the Lord. And I think that's what we need to try to do the best we can. So. Uh, When you hear Joe Biden say those things, uh, well, what does 1 Timothy 2 say? It says we should pray for those, uh, that we might lead a peaceable and quiet life. Uh, We still engage. We engage robustly. uh, But, you know, one of the things I think every Christian should do that got saw that speech, pray for Joe Biden. Pray that he has wisdom and discernment to to make right choices.
1: And and I think... One of the reasons why we are instructed to pray for those who spitefully use us, to pray for, to love our enemies, and pray for them specifically, is because it's really hard to harbor bitterness and resentment against somebody that you've prayed for, that you you recognize, and this this is the discipline I think is realizing that though Joe Biden has offended me, though somebody has offended me, they still bear the image of God. Jesus still died for them, just like he did for me. They are still work in progress, just like I am. And when I pray for them in a way that sincerely is seeking God's best for their life, that makes it harder for me to be, bitterness, to, to be bitter, to harbor unforgiveness. And if I'm not bitter and I'm not harboring unforgiveness— that makes my life better, doesn't
10: it? No, I agree with you, Joseph, and that's why I think as I've adopted a practice in my own life to try to pray every night for the president of the United States— yeah prayed for Barack Obama during his presidency, the four years yeah. of the Trump industry. I try to do that now yeah. for President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, even though I fiercely disagree with many of their yeah. policy situations. But that's, again, where a biblical worldview gives us a different sort of engagement. You, you just mentioned it. Um, we as Christians realize that every single person is made in the image of God, which means they have inherent value and dignity. Um, it's interesting. I think Joe Biden actually in his speech last night used that phrase, uh, image of God. And on that point, he's right, that we are all made in God. God's image and have value. Right. And I think that's where a Christian who engages in politics, we're going to fight for our the bills we care about. We're going to fight for the candidates we care about. Yeah. But our engagement should look different than the world's.
1: Yeah. There is still so much irony in saying, oh, we are all made in the image of God. <laughs> therefore, all those pro-life people are a threat to the country. Um, but we're not dwelling on that <laughs> right now. Uh, James chapter one. Can it all joy, my brothers, when you meet Trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Should the things that the president says about us change what we do in about 30 seconds?
10: No, it doesn't. I think as Christians, we need to continue to seek to live lives full of courage, conviction, uh, character, and realize God's called us to be faithful. And so the president can say whatever he wants about those of us who he disagrees with on these issues. Um, We should pray for him. Maybe this redoubles uh, our efforts to pray for him. Uh, But let's be faithful to what God has called us to do in our homes, in our workplace. Uh, Nothing that any elected leader says will change that. Yeah, David Clausen, thanks so much. Thanks, Joseph.
1: And friends, thank you for being with us. And remember, whatever the president says, whatever somebody says about you, it doesn't change the reason God woke you up this morning. You're here. You're here for a purpose. Don't be derailed by the circumstances, by other people's reactions to you and God's work in the world. Carry on. Deuteronomy 31.6, I'll leave you with these words. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Friends, hope you have a blessed weekend. That is the reason why we can fear God, but nothing else. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch.